The moment has arrived. I'm Tom Dickinson, and welcome back to The Moment. On every episode of this podcast, I ask a different Doctor Who fan to pick a single moment from an episode of Doctor Who that they have a lot to say about, and then, once they've picked that moment, to come and speak with me about it on this show. My guest this week is writer Paul Cornell. Paul is a prolific writer of novels, comics, and television scripts. Listeners to this podcast are most likely to know him from his Doctor Who writing across all of the aforementioned media, including the Christopher Eccleston episode Father's Day from 2005 and the David Tennant episodes Human Nature and Family of Blood in 2007. When Paul and I spoke back in August, we discussed a moment from the second part of Nightmare of Eden, a 1979 serial featuring Tom Baker as the fourth Doctor, with his companions, Romana, a time lady played by Lala Ward, and K-9, a robot dog, voiced by David Brierley. The Doctor and friends land the TARDIS on an interstellar cruise ship, which has by some misfortune come out of hyperspace at the exact same space and time as an interstellar trade ship. And suddenly it's all, you got your trade ship in my cruise ship, you got your cruise ship in my trade ship. And things just get stranger from there. It turns out there's this whole criminal drug smuggling operation going on on the cruise ship. And it involves an experimental matter transmutation machine and these monsters called mandrels. There's just a lot to unravel. And as the doctor sets to work trying to unravel it, naturally the captain of the cruise ship begins to wonder, just who is this doctor person and who is he working for? And that brings us to Paul's moment. My moment comes during the Tom Baker story, Nightmare of Eden. The Doctor is trying to get around the business of many people during the course of the story wondering what he's doing there, who he represents, who he's working for. Your people knew it would be on board, did they? And at one point... My people? ...where an official asks him... Well, you're an agent, aren't you? No, I'm the Doctor. I keep telling you that. Yes, but who do you work for? Work for? Uh, The Doctor declares, I don't work for anyone. I'm just having fun. I don't work for anybody. I'm just having fun. Everybody works for somebody. Why did you pick this moment? Well, because uh, it's uh, representative of something I love in Doctor Who, which is Graham Williams' era apparent flippancy. But actually, I think it goes a lot deeper than it looks on paper. It's one of a number of instances in this serial where the Doctor talks about his lack of employment. One of the of the best being the amazingly uh, crisp exchange... Me? Yes. Well, I told you I'm from Galactic. ...between Rig and the Doctor. Galactic went out of business 20 years ago. I wondered why I hadn't been paid. Now, that's not good enough. That's what I thought. Which is, is so Douglas Adams, you know. Yeah. I can believe that Bob Baker wrote, I don't work for anyone, I'm just having fun. But the other exchange is very Douglas Adams. And I just think that um, the Doctor's insistence in this story and the Fourth Doctor's wider insistence on several different occasions that he doesn't work for anyone is really important. He doesn't work for the Time Lords. We ask you to do something for us. I won't do it. Whatever it is, I refuse. He doesn't work for UNIT. At that time, I found something better to do than run round after the Brigadier. He keeps on meeting people who <laughs> regard him as possibly working for somebody, and he keeps on denying it. Mm. And uh, this forms a pattern because various script editors and various writers have recognised a central facet of the Fourth Doctor's character, which is much to do with the English class system. 
You see, this doctor especially, in reaction, I think, to John Pertwee's doctor, who definitely did work for someone. Right. It's really quite simple. I'm attached to unit as a scientific advisor. This doctor is an amateur, not a professional. Now, in terms of English society, and in terms of cricket especially, where there used to be separate changing rooms for amateurs and professionals who played in the same team, amateurs were gentlemen who um, didn't have to work to make money, Mm. who had inherited money. So to be an amateur in English terms, and the fourth doctor, nobody ever says this, the fourth doctor is incredibly posh. Right. That accent is not Tom Baker's original accent. The accent he's used all his career is such an extraordinary drama school accent and possibly based on the idea that the Doctor is a Time Lord. He sends it even higher into the uh, rooftops as the Doctor. This is a very, very upper-class individual in English terms. And he keeps dressing strangely and hanging out in an arty way with other arty folk, including, indeed, several artists. Right. And insisting that he doesn't um, make money. He's not employed by anyone. 1,000 gold pieces if you can mend our android. 1,000 gold pieces? Do you think you can buy me for money? Ha! 500. And especially with Lala Ward, these are two Aristos roaming the galaxy who find discussion of money beneath them. And with K-9, they've sort of got a, a little working-class Batman who goes around arranging things for them, a, a gentleman dog butler. K-9, do you know where she is? Master. Then run and fetch her and tell her to hurry. Master. So, basically, that's one facet of, of what I find very interesting about this particular doctor declaring that he doesn't work for anybody. He doesn't have to. Right. The Queen is the other person in British society who doesn't carry money. She does not have any on her. And some of this is, I think, perhaps to avoid awkward situations where she might be asked to put a, a coin in a, a collection box or something like that. But there's something about money being contaminating, money being um, dirty, money dragging you down into the process, reminding you of capitalism and its grasp on the world. So I remember in fandom used to assert as one of the ridiculous things fandom asserts that the Doctor never carried any money, whereas we see him, that he's got random and ridiculous money in his pockets on several occasions. Sure. But he never, he never carries anything useful in terms of money until we get to Sylvester McCoy, and Sylvester McCoy's Doctor is, of course, prepared. Yeah. Five pound piece. Thank you, sir. The other person who didn't want to deal with money, who was always above it, in a literal way, was Jesus Christ. Please tell me, Master, what must I do to have eternal life? who insisted that if one was to follow him as a disciple, one had to actually give all your money away. Go and sell all you have and give it to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. And always had to rely on other people doing things which required money. So that's one of the many ways in which the shape of the Doctor's myth coincides with the Christ mythology. I use that in a non... um, It's definitely a body of myth. I I don't mean to say that it is therefore untrue. Right, yeah. You know, I... That's that's such an interesting angle on this. You know, it had never occurred to me to tie the notion that he's, quote-unquote, just having fun and not working to the fact that the Doctor is a Time Lord. He's essentially a rogue aristocrat Mm. who is, in some ways, his adventures are a form of exercising that privilege. Absolutely. 
the privilege to kind of forsake where he came from and and go off and wander around and not worry about stuff like that. It is, of course, a bizarre way to just have fun, to sure. continue to put oneself in terrifying situations for the sake of other people. Right, right. But at the same time, I like that as well, that he doesn't have any grandiose thoughts about a mission. This saving world, saving the universe is, I'm just having fun. Yeah, and you mentioned the seventh Doctor, who is perhaps the opposite side of that coin, a little bit more agenda-driven and, you know, preparation. Mm. Always doing battle with cosmic evil, basically. Somehow, the evil force survives. An intelligence, pure evil. Whereas the fourth Doctor is more of, you know, bohemian is the term that's often used. He just kind of flits from place to place just for the sake of it. And of course, bohemians were people who either actually had no money or were disdainful of having money. Mm. This is also, uh, I don't work for anyone, I'm just having fun, something that was, to a greater lesser degree, often my own creed. My dad once told me, just as I was getting successful, actually, he yelled at me, you're always on holiday. And... (laughs) And I'm, I'm actually not. Um, I do like to look like I am. Hmm. I, I like to look like an amateur because I grew up between classes in English society. My father actually was a Durham miner who came down south and hauled himself up several league tables in the um, social ladder. And I, during my youth, went from private school to comprehensive school, from paying school to free school, back and forth, Mm. as my parents' fortunes waxed and waned. That gave... I I once used that as the origin for um, superpowers in The Squire, in my Knight and Squire comic, (laughs) that one can acquire superpowers by moving back and forth through English society, like moving a magnet through an electrical (laughs) field. Um, So I grew up between classes, not knowing what I was supposed to be. And I also, rather like Tom Baker in playing the Doctor, adopted an accent, which is the one you can hear now, Hmm. which is not the one from where I come from. So, But I I often wanted to be upper class. And so hence my desire to appear amateurish, like... uh, Well, not amateurish, to appear amateur, like Lord Peter Whimsey. I mean, I would investigate this case for the fun of the thing. That's very good of you. No, 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 not at all. It's my hobby. If you see what I mean. And I do do projects just for fun. I don't always work for money. I sometimes work for money and because that thing is fun. And I wouldn't necessarily do that thing if money were the only thing I did. Sure. But this amateurism thing, it also makes people underestimate you. Which... If your Lord Peter Whimsey is a good thing, if your The Second Doctor is a good thing, mm-hmm. if, if the Fourth Doctor, it's hard to imagine how anybody could underestimate something as tall, colourful and shouty as the Fourth Doctor, but nevertheless... Right, right. <laughs> My dear, I don't think he's as stupid as he seems. My dear, nobody could be as stupid as he seems. And the, the bad side of people underestimating you is that they've underestimated you. So I perhaps should start telling people that I put in loads of hard work to appear to be just having fun. But um, I suspect that the Fourth Doctor is putting a a bushel over his light as well by, um, you know, not um, pointing out the very many ways in which he's already learnt every detail about the situation and is working on solving it. Right. I mean, Nightmare of Eden is actually one of the few situations in which the Fourth Doctor has deliberately become involved because he can see what's happened. Bit of a mishmash. I don't think we should interfere. Interfere? Of course we should interfere. Always do what you're best at. That's what I say. Now, come on. True, yeah. He sees the spaceships having crashed into one another and thinks, oh, I can disentangle this. Mm. 
And um, indeed, he probably could, or rather Romana could, because the other way in which he's um, just having fun is never making it entirely clear how good he is about it, at anything. Yeah. Because he's got somebody with him, but often two persons with him, who are very, very good at doing things. And he never quite gets around to showing his own abilities in, the, in the, any of these areas, which, again, I think is rather wonderful. Yeah. I wonder how you think that Romana kind of fits into that paradigm, the notion of just having fun and not being an agent of someone. Because this version of Romana isn't an agent of the Time Lords, but or of the of the White Guardian, but the, the first version of Romana we meet is... That's the new assistant. The president of the Supreme Council sent me. Well, that's just it. Just because she's regenerated, that seems to let her off the hook for that, <laughs> yeah. which is true of Time Lords and Regeneration in general, really. None of them seem to really think that they have any obligation to anything their, their previous self did. Yeah. But um, it's not until JNT sort of remembers that she really should be going back to Gallifrey or doing something. Time Lords want me back. That she starts thinking about that and fretting about that. Doctor, I don't want to spend the rest of my life on Gallifrey. But at this point... After all this... Any obligations her predecessor may have had to anybody are out of the window. Right. And um, she does not hide her light under a bushel. She is... Very head girl, very um, school prefect, and um, I may be inexperienced, but I did graduate from the academy with a triple first. Is wonderfully in that very posh British girls' school way, absolutely encouraged to show off her quality. They'll probably affect the dimensional matrix of your machine. Are you claiming superior knowledge? Equal, perhaps. Mm -hmm. Which is fabulous, honestly. And James Goss, um, who writes an amazing Romana Doctor pairing in, well, all of the, the work he does, creating entire novels out of other people's small jottings on, on the subject um, and putting their name on the front of them. He um, has a, a fantastic relationship between the two of them, whereby basically he knows that she's always going to pull him out of the frying pan. Mm, yeah. I'm curious to know whether you enjoy Doctor Who more when the Doctor's operating in this sort of independent, just having fun, kind of larking about way, or whether the Doctor, you know, because there are times, as you mentioned, in the in the Pertwee era where the Doctor is an agent of some other force, or in the Key to Time season when he's been sent on a mission, or a self-driven mission like the, like the Seventh Doctor is, and kind of crusading against evil forces. Which of those do you think is a more appealing version of Doctor Who for you? Well, I think there are two separate things here. The Doctor has having missions, or a self-appointed mission, has on occasion been tremendously satisfying and interesting. I think uh, the key to time season where it's played as comedy. You want me to volunteer, isn't that it? Precisely. And if I don't? Nothing. You mean nothing will happen to me? Nothing at all. Because it would be hard to do it in a very serious way with this Doctor is very interesting and one of my favourites. I love the Seventh Doctor and him suddenly having a sense of of mission. Come on, Ace. We've got work to do. At the time was tremendous, was a wonderful revolution, was just, wow, that's interesting. Mm. So I think on occasion that can work fine. What I do think, I like a Doctor that doesn't want to big themselves up, that wants to hide their own achievements and wants to be underestimated. I got too big, Dorian, too noisy. Time to step back into the shadows. I think I probably started the tendency towards the Doctor making big speeches, telling people to um, to go away in Revelation, uh, but it certainly caught on. And I'm, I'm not really 
a fan anymore of that feeling of the Doctor um, saying how big and how powerful he is. When when Sylvester McCoy does it on television, he ends with, or I'll throw a powerful something at you. Yeah. I would use military against someone as formidable as you. Go before I unleash a terrible something on you. And I think it's Go, quite clear that he's bluffing, that um, he's pretending, and he's making it up as he goes along. But doing it in all seriousness, you know, I, I like a Doctor who, who his enemies have never heard of. Right. I mean, there, there are episodes in, in the new series who, whose plot resolution hinges on, you know, look me up. I don't know. There are moments where I find that quite thrilling, like at the end of the 11th hour when he, having already saved the day, already beaten the Atraxi, he... I'm the Doctor. ...calls them back just to, just to gloat at them. I don't know. Th- that works on me, at least. But basically... Run. To do it once would be tremendously thrilling. Yeah. Um, it, it, there is a, a lot of diminishing returns. Something really interesting to me is the notion of the Doctor as, as an agent of another power. That's kind of been revisited in the most recent series with the revelation that there have been incarnations of the Doctor prior to Hartnell, some of which, at least the Ruth Doctor, who we meet in Fugitive of the Jadoon, has been working for the Time Lords. Who is this Gat? I worked for her once. You've got a job? Mm, sort of. Not one you apply for, not one you can ever leave. Believe me, I tried. And this didn't occur to me at all until until I started speaking to you about it, but that coincides with a realignment of the Doctor's origin so that... What happened to the child? Oh, Doctor, really? Uh, she's no longer simply... Haven't you worked this out yet? a member of this, you know, aristocratic society, but in fact, you know, a victim exploited by it. So she's been kind of displaced. The child is you. From that, that privilege, we now know there's a, there's a darker history behind that. You are the timeless child. I'm wondering, if is that something that um, you're interested to see play out more in future series? or Oh, immensely. I think that that adds a whole other wonderful dimension to it. The idea of the Doctor being found as a baby again, strikes mythological notes, which are wonderful. Mm. And the way that this is one of those theories which makes so much sense, that strings together so much, from I'm more than just a Time Lord. Oh, Davros, I am far more than just another Time Lord. To I'm half human on my mother's side, all sorts of things. have a big secret. What is it? I'm half human on my mother's side. (laughs) I love the fact that anybody now can have a doctor that looks like them. Mm. To kind of switch tracks a bit, tell me about how you first became a Doctor Who fan. (laughs) (laughs) I've told this story very often that I was terrified of it because of what the, the kids in the playground said about it. And I'd seen a glimpse of John Pertwee on the front of um, TV 21 or Countdown comic where he was in league with the Daleks in that particular strip. He was pretending. And I thought, oh, he must be, he looks scary and he must be evil. Mm. And I would watch Play Away on the other side on BBC Two to make absolutely sure I wasn't going to see Doctor Who. And I would turn over at intervals and see scary things like Lynx turning around and taking his helmet off. How can they even show this <laughs> while children are awake? 
And um, I uh, finally got all my courage together and told my mother I was going to watch Doctor Who. And it was the brain of Morbius. I, Morbius, who once led the High Council of the Time Lords and dreamed the greatest dreams in history. Was Nightmare of Eden a story that you liked a lot as a youth? Uh, no, not really, because I very much saw at the time, because of my age, a turn down in quality because of the turn down in um, budget mm. between Hinchcliffe and Williams. I wasn't yet quite old enough for Williams. Uh, I didn't really become a fan, however, until Davison came along, because until then it was perfectly possible uh, to buy all the Target books and be an avid enthusiast for Doctor Who and for that just to be like being a normal um, school kid, uh, because it's a mainstream show. Sure. Then when Davison came along, it sort of ceased to be a mainstream show a bit. And also, this seemed to be a sparkly new Doctor with sparkly seriousness and science and all those things that appealed to bullied, autistic, um, cramped up, mm. just starting to write me. And I just grabbed hold of it like a a rope and used it to haul myself into fanzines. Mm. And that's the moment I became a fan, when I became aware of fandom. When I found the address of the Doctor Who Appreciation Society in Starburst magazine's letter column and wrote to them, and something like six months later, because it was actually hard to find that, it was a closely guarded secret. Huh. They didn't like people joining. <laughs> okay, well, <laughs> and, fan gatekeeping. Well, yes, literally, they were gatekeeping just about everybody. Yeah. And so, yeah, I joined and met everyone who was going to be part of my personal universe for decades to come. Wow. What do you think of uh, Nightmare of Eden generally? I think it's a really good script and sparkles in lots and lots of places. I mean, I suppose I, the, the drug stuff... Any idea what this is, canine? The seriousness of it is interesting. A fungus, source of the drug XYP. Yes. Dangerous, addictive, known as Fraxoe. But sits ill at ease Fraxoe. with the tone of everything else. I've seen whole communities, whole planets destroyed by this. Is a kind of warm complacency and then a total apathy. Until it wears off, that is. And soon you're dead. I think there's something poetic and wonderful about Tom Baker's sudden seriousness as an actor when he has to be in the same scene with that sort of material. Right. But I think this doctor is awkward with that stuff because it's not part of the the feel of the show at that point. Hmm. But honestly, I think you could remake that today, just about. I think it's a, a very, very good script. Uh, I think it's a question of production being a letdown. It's also also directed by Alan Bromley, who I feel a, a very strong sense of antipathy to, um, having just watched all of Out of the Unknown hmm. that exists, who um, basically ruined that show as, as producer. <laughs> I don't know, is that... Should I be talking ill of fellow professionals, even ones from decades ago? I don't know. Well, I don't, I don't know, but I know, wasn't this one of the last jobs he did? Well, I think this was his last work on Doctor Who, right? I believe he stormed off the set at one point. Oh, yeah. And uh, the rest of the story was directed by Graham Williams, I guess. Yeah. It's one of those things where, as a child in the 70s, one accepted all manner of dodgy visuals because this was just what magic looked like. Mm. But I think one grew up at that speed where... By this point, we'd seen so many things which looked better that it was looking 
you know, just inapt for science fiction. It had been some time since I had seen this this serial before I, I rewatched it to speak with you today. And I kind of went into it with, you know, you having told me what your moment was. The line I had in my head was, I'm just having fun. And I was like, oh, wow, this is really quite a dark and it, it may be one of the least uh, – least fun is not charitable. Maybe it's not as whimsical or silly as as many of the stories of this era. But it's still got that lovely Douglas Adams polish. Mm, yes. um, one, one thing he does do, which I appreciate a lot, is when he's pushed to do so, he can make a plot chime like a bell. I mean, City of Death is yeah. just amazing in that regard. The explosion has caused Scarlioni to splinter in time, also caused the birth of the human race. That's what's about to happen. And um, when he's not pushed to do so, he can create porridge <laughs> like the Dirt Gently books. But um, I, I'm assuming that the script editor at the time is responsible for shaping an awful lot of the plots. Yeah. And um, I, I think that season is a, has a bunch of good plots. Yeah, it's interesting. I was I was also recently watching uh, Day of the Doctor for another episode of the show. Uh, it struck me how the the stasis cubes in that story are almost almost lifted That's from it. this. Um, That's the Zygon in the picture now. It's not a picture. It's a stasis cube. Time Lord Art, frozen instance in time, bigger on the inside. But could be deployed as suspended animation. Oh, that's very good. Creatures stored and in a painting and getting in and getting out and using that. Oh yeah, <laughs> as a as a smuggling device. Uh, the doctors smuggle themselves uh, in in that painting. Goodness, yes. It, I wonder. I wonder if Stephen has thought of that because once one is when one is immersed in Doctor Who, you do soak this stuff up and come out with it without ever having realized it a lot of the time. Mm, yeah. It's just such a wonderfully Doctor Who idea um, in, in both cases. It's a little more artistic in that case and a little more scientific in this one. But um, yeah. yeah, it's pretty great. Oh, and that, that, that script is, is just an amazing piece of plotic work. Oh, I yeah. mean, that's, yeah, Adams would have been proud of that one. So another, another kind of switch of tracks. I'm curious to know, have you been watching Doctor Who much during the pandemic? Um. Not really, no. I've been making my way through ancient box sets of stuff I hadn't seen, like Out of the Unknown. Um, Britbox has stopped me watching Doctor Who, basically, because it's just sitting there <laughs> on, my t- on my television now, so it, it's getting on fine. I don't have to do anything. Wow. Um, <laughs> also, my life during the pandemic has been so busy mm. that, um, you know, I actually haven't been watching much. I shouldn't say that, I'm just having fun. <laughs> And that is all for the moment this week. Thank you once again to Paul Cornell, who you can follow on Twitter at Paul underscore Cornell. If you would like to find out more about Paul's work, you can head over to his website, paulcornell.com, where you can also sign up for his very good newsletter. Paul has got some really exciting creator-owned comics projects going this year, with the third issue of his heartfelt horror series, I Walk With Monsters, hitting comic stores later this month from comic publisher The Vault. And another new series, The Modern Frankenstein, launching in April from Magma Comics. Why don't you call up your local comic book store and see how you can order these fine comics? I am sure that they are having a difficult time with the pandemic and would much appreciate your patronage. And if you are less of a comic person and more of a prose fiction person, check out Paul's Litchford series of novellas, the fifth and final of which was released late last year. And if you just can't stand to read anything at all, well, I know you like podcasts because you've listened this far, so maybe you can go hear Paul discuss the Hammer Horror films with past moment guest Elizabeth Miles over on the Hammer House of Podcast. 
As you probably already know, you can find out more about this show, including back episodes and show notes, over at themomentpod.com. And if you knew that, then it will not surprise you to hear that you can follow the show on Twitter or Instagram at themomentpod. And of course, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash themomentpod if you want to. Thanks. I'm Tom Dickinson, and I'll be back in a moment. (laughs) 